This morning we're finishing uh, the series that we've been looking at the last eight weeks called The Glory of God in the Salvation of Sinners. If you've missed the first eight parts, well, that's okay. Um, we're, what we're going to look at this morning is really how God in his sovereign power who has accomplished the work of salvation, how that is applied to save individuals, how that is received to save individuals. One thing that we haven't discussed in depth as we've been going through this series is how the message of the cross or the message of the gospel, okay, how that is involved in the work that God uses to save sinners, okay? And that's one, one thing that most people notice that are perhaps outside Christian circles um, is that these Christians, especially evangelicals and Baptists, boy, they're really concerned about getting their message out. You know, what's the deal with that? Why do they always want to give me a Bible, give me a track, get, get me to watch something? They always, they're always so consumed about getting the message out. Why is that? Okay, and we're going to be looking at that this morning. We realize in our church, the gospel is central. The gospel is central in our lives as Christians. Our gospel is central in terms of what we are to do as a church. We're called to go and to make disciples and we understand the gospel. That is the good news of what Jesus has done in his death, burial, and resurrection. That message is central to making disciples. Okay, so today we're going to look how the preaching of the cross, how the word, the message of the cross or the gospel how that marries together with God's sovereign work, what he's accomplished, what he's done in history, and how that comes together to fulfill God's plan of rescuing sinners. Okay? Now, in fact, we've already sung this sermon. Um, the second verse of O Great God, I'm going to read to you. It says, I was blinded by my sin. I had no ears to hear your voice. I did not know your love within. I had no taste for heaven's joys. Then your spirit gave me life. And we've talked about that. Now, how does that happen? And it says here, you opened up your word to me through the gospel of your son, gave me endless hope and peace. So that's our topic this morning, how God uses the work of his spirit together with the word. They get married together. They are received. They are believed. And an individual is saved. They're forgiven. Okay? So we just read from 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And I'm going to read verse 18 to 24 again. Just so we want to get this text into our mind as it reflects on this topic of the message of the cross. The message of the gospel. So again, look with me, 1 Corinthians 1, verse 18 to 24. 20, yeah, 24. It says, For the word of the cross, that is the gospel, the message of what Jesus has done on the cross. For the word of the cross is folly, it's foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where's the one who is wise? Where's the scribe? Where's the debater of this age? Has God not made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, 
But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Okay, so what this text is laying for us is focusing on how the word of the cross, the message of the cross, that is the gospel of what Jesus has done in history, really is God's wisdom and God's power. We see the wisdom of God in verse 18. It says the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. And the rest of the chapter argues, but it's really the wisdom of God for those who are being saved. That is, the world did not attain to a knowledge of God through their own wisdom, through their own devices. Rather, it's been a a top-down approach where God has come down and saved through the suffering and death and resurrection of Jesus. He has accomplished victory. That doesn't make sense. How can a Jew who lived 2,000 years ago die on a cross, rise again three days later? How does that accomplish God's redemption and usher in salvation of, of an innumerable multitude of individuals and bring in a new heavens and new earth? It doesn't make any sense. It sounds foolish. It sounds foolish. But this is God's wisdom. God's wisdom. That's how God has done it to accomplish his redemption. And those who believe and as we begin to understand the scriptures, we see that is perfect. It had to happen that way. And so we recognize it as God's wisdom. In verse 21, it also says, For in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, but it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. That is, through the message we see God's wisdom. Okay? And also look at verse 24. It says, But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. So those who who believe, it says, those who are called, those who are saved, recognize that in the death of Christ, in what has been accomplished by Christ, that in fact is wisdom. Because we recognize that we are hopeless in our sin. That there's nothing that we can do to to earn our favor before this almighty, all-powerful, holy God. And so when we see the substitutionary nature of Christ's atonement, that he came down and he bore our sin and he died suffering the penalty for our sin and then he gives to us his righteousness, we see, wow, that's brilliant that God would do this. And we see not only do we have this idea of imputation in the work of Christ, we see this idea of imputation back in the garden with Adam and he's a representative and we just... Our minds begin to get blown by the covenants and by the heads and all the things that God has done in history to make salvation through Christ possible. And so we recognize it as wisdom from God. Now, this morning, we're going to be looking, focusing more on the power of God in the word of the cross. We see that in verse 18. The power of God. It says that the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved... It is the power of God. The power of God. Verse 24 also says, But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God. Now, why is the word of the cross here called God's power? Why is the preaching of Christ crucified called God's power? Power, by definition, is is effort that accomplishes some form of work. Okay, that's power. Whenever there is an ability, a capacity to do something, that is power. Okay, so here we have the message of the cross being described as God's power. God's power to do what? God's power to save. 
Okay, so the message of the cross here is God's capacity, his ability to save his people. And he does it through his message, this message of the gospel. And so as we consider this here this morning, this is what we're going to be focusing on. How exactly the word of the cross, the gospel, is able to save? How is it powerful to save? And what does that mean for us here today? Okay. Now, we must understand that God's power is absolutely essential for our rescue from sin. We looked at a number of weeks ago how we are dead in trespasses and sins, how we are unable to please God, how we're unable to seek him apart from his grace and working in our life, how we are, we are in bondage to our sin. And so it requires the power of God to give to us a new nature, a nature that would seek him, a nature that would, that would desire him, the nature that would see the wisdom and the beauty of Christ. And so God's power must be at work. We see God's power at work in the atonement of Christ. He powerfully and wonderfully secured an eternal redemption. His blood sealed and effected the new covenant and was powerful. It accomplished that for which he set out for it to accomplish. We see the same power at work in Christ when he was raised from the dead. The Bible says this is the same power working in us to grant us new life. We see power in God's grace to impart the new birth, this idea of, of where the life of God now is imparted into the soul of man, where there's new desires, new affections. Ezekiel says, he calls it a heart of stone being ripped out and a heart of flesh being put in. That requires God's power, supernatural power from on high. And we saw last week how God's power is at work to keep us from falling and faltering, to keep us persevering in love and in faith and in good works. First Peter three, first Peter one, verse three to five tells us that the power of God is working to keep those who are his. Okay. So we see God's power. That's been the theme through all these messages, all, all the things that God has done to achieve salvation. It's always described in terms of his power, in terms of powers, powers, power. And now the message of the gospel is said to be his power. Okay. Message of the gospel is said to be God's power over and over again. Preaching of the gospel is said here to be God's power. Now, this morning, what I want to do is consider four implications or applications, um, meditations on the truth of this text that says the message of the gospel is God's power. Okay. Four things that flow out of this, flow right from this text because God's word is powerful to accomplish salvation. Okay, so that's what we're looking at. God's word is powerful. That is, the message of the gospel actually accomplishes salvation. It's the instrument God uses to bring about salvation. And we're going to look at four different truths that flow from that. First one is this. Because, because the word of God or the message of the cross, the gospel, is powerful... First truth is this, the message of the cross must be proclaimed, okay? It must be proclaimed. As we consider this truth, how the message of the cross must be proclaimed, we have to wonder, how is the message of the gospel, the word of the cross, how is it God's power? How, how, how does the articulation 
of what Jesus has done in history, how is that God's power? How, how can that be God's power? It's just, it's, it's almost like a news broadcast of what has happened. This has taken place. Jesus Christ is, he's died. He's was buried for three days and he rose again from the grave. And, and he's done so for forgiveness of sins. How is that announcement? How does that contain power? How does that work? Look at verse 21. Look at verse 21. It says, for since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. That is God determined it to be this way. It pleased God. This is God's desire. Not only to send his son to die and to rise again on the cross for forgiveness of sins, but to use the announcement of that very event to accomplish his purpose to save his people. God was pleased to do that through the folly of preaching. And we're going to get into really unpack uh, why God would do it that way. But for now, God has determined to do it this way. That is the way that God has chosen to apply the work of salvation is through the proclamation of his word, whether that's verbally, whether that's in written form, whether that's on a movie, the gospel message is to be conveyed as a message. And that is what God is going to use as an instrument for salvation. Okay, so we see the gospel here is the power of God, the instrument God uses to save people. And because God has determined, he was pleased to save people in this way, therefore, the message of the cross must be proclaimed. We must do it. Okay, there's implications here. If God is God's pleased to save his people through the preaching of the message of the cross, then the message of the cross needs to be preached. It must be preached. Necessary. Okay, that's why in Romans 1, when Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. That is, I'm not ashamed to declare it to you because it is the power of God to salvation for those who believe. And so I'm going to be bold in this proclamation. Even if it means my death, the gospel must be preached. It must advance. It must go forward. I'm not ashamed of it. In Romans 10, he goes, how are people going to be saved? They need to call upon the name of the Lord. That's how they're going to be saved. And how are they going to call upon the name of the Lord? Well, they must understand that they need to call upon the name of the Lord. And how are they going to understand that? Well, they got to be able to hear it. And how are they going to hear it? Because a preacher is going to go and preach to them. And so therefore, we need to send preachers to go and to preach the message of the cross so that people will hear and then understand and believe and then cry out to the Lord to be saved. It's necessary. People don't cry, they won't be saved. People don't believe, they won't be saved. People don't hear, they can't be saved. If a preacher doesn't go and preach to them, they can't be saved. The message of the cross is necessary for people to be saved. It pleased God through the preaching of Jesus Christ and him crucified that he would save his people. So it must be preached. I hope that you see that here from this text. Um, Now, as I preach even here this morning, I am a sinner saved by grace. Uh, I'm not here because uh, I'm I'm better than anybody else. I'm not here because I'm a different level of Christian than anybody else. I'm a sinner. But as I preach here this morning as a sinner saved by grace, 
as the word of God is coming from the text of scripture and out through this feeble and frail instrument, the Bible teaches us that at that moment, at that event, God's word is powerful. It's living and it's active and it's going to accomplish its purposes. Okay, God's word is not some stuffy thing that was written 2,000 years ago. There's no life in it. But even as it is preached, it is God's power to accomplish its purposes. And sometimes as the word of God is preached, God's purpose is to bring judgment. We see this in the, in the prophets in Isaiah and Jeremiah. They went and they preached to a stiff-necked and rebellious people. And who responded? Nobody. Nobody followed them. Yet God's word was accomplishing its purposes to foretell judgment, cursing. And other times as the God's word is preached, it brings softening. It brings joy. It mediates Christ and, and his spirit flows into our hearts and we see the wonder and the beauty of the gospel. That happens as preaching is taking place. This is why this pulpit is right here, front and center of this church. This is why since the Reformation, preaching has been recovered as the primary um, event in the worship service. It's not just that we like to go and listen to a monologue. It's because when the word of God is being preached, the power of God is at work to convict, to convert, to sanctify, to redeem, to build up, to encourage. There is something supernatural happening, happening as the preaching is going on. And that's what this passage is telling us through the folly preaching the foolishness of this message that is being preached god is using that to save those who believe this is why we must continue to preach and it also gives us great confidence when paul says i'm not ashamed of the gospels i'm going to go and preach it it should give us great confidence not only to recognize the centrality of sharing the gospel message and its necessity but the confidence that as we continue to preach whether it's here in the pulpit, whether it's on the street corner, whether it's in a C train station, whether it's downtown when it's really, really cold, um, whether it's at the supper table at home, whether it's in a family gathering, whether it's, it's giving a track to somebody, um, whether it's, 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 it's passing that on to your children, as we continue to preach the gospel, God's power will be at work. That's what God has determined. That's a great confidence that we have. If we continue to preach the gospel, people will be saved. It's guaranteed. It's God's power. This is how he's going to save people. So we can never shrink back from the proclamation of the gospel, from the message of the cross. This is what God is going to use to save his people. And so we go forth with boldness, knowing this is the very means that God is going to use to save his people. And so we're going to continue to preach. We're going to continue to preach. This is what God desires. This is what he has purposed. So we must preach the gospel. Okay, so this is the first implication. The message of the cross must be proclaimed. This should be our highest duty, our greatest joy, our task. And not just for myself or a select few. All of us are to share the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, and we do it with confidence. We do it with boldness. We do it with prayer because we know that God is going to use his word to accomplish his power. Okay, it's through the folly, the foolishness of what we preach that he's going to save those who believe. Not through the preacher, not through the speaker, through the message. Okay, so don't feel I can't do that. You know, through the message of the cross, 
is how God has determined to save his people. Okay? The second application from this text is this. The message of the cross will be rejected. Will be rejected. Okay? We just thought about how the message of the cross is the power of God, therefore it must be preached. It's going to accomplish salvation. We must also remember it will be rejected. Will be rejected. Look at verses 22 and 23. It says, For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. Okay? We're going to finish that verse in a moment. But as we go forth and preach the message of the cross, it will be rejected. It will be rejected. Now, in our day and age, we think, well, people in our day and age, are, they're so sophisticated. They're so educated. You know, they, they, they're so scientific. Uh, they're so up to date in all these cultural advancements. And so the gospel really to them is really, really foolishness. You know, and so we have to be careful in how we share the gospel today. We certainly can't talk about you know, the Genesis account, because people just think we're just funny and silly. Uh, we can't talk about uh, human sexuality, what the Bible says about that. We can't go there because they're just going to reject it based on that. And so we can't talk about sin or judgment because that might offend people. And so we have to really remove the gospel, essentially, in order to try to be winsome to people. Okay? Now, that's a problem in our day. And we're going to talk about that more in just a moment. But the problem is not new to our day and age. You see that? In their day and age, Jews and Greeks, they also rejected the gospel. Okay, it's not because people today are so difficult, but people back then were so gullible. That's why the church exploded, right? Because they, they, they would believe resurrection back then. No, it was foolishness to them. Okay, so both Jews and Greeks rejected the gospel and people are going to reject the gospel today. And it's going to be for the same reason. Because the message of the cross is foolishness to them. Because it says here that Jews demand a sign and Greeks seek wisdom. You know, and most of the folks that we're going to talk to today are, are non-Jewish people. But whether the Jew, whether the Greek or Gentile, you know, non-Jew, as we talk to people today, the message of the cross is going to be foolish to them because in order to embrace the message of the cross, you must admit that you're a sinner. You must admit that you can't make it to God on your own. And that right there is offensive in and of itself. That someone needs a savior. I don't need a savior. I'm smart enough. I'm powerful enough. I, I, I'm wise enough. I have enough. I have enough money. I have a good education. I'm a good person. Have you seen my track record? Have you seen my wife? Have you seen my cars? Have you seen my house? I'm, I'm good. I'm good at work. People like me. I don't need a savior. I'm good on my own. And so the very fact that we tell people that Christ is a savior immediately is an offense and people will reject it in their pride, in their pride, because they don't want saving. They think that they are good on their own. So it's nothing to do with intellect. But we do have to avoid the lies of pragmatism. You know, I, I talked earlier how because people reject the gospel, therefore we got to take out all those parts that people might reject, like sin and hell and judgment, uh, those and human sexuality. Those, those things in the Bible that are really offensive, we need to kind of put those behind and, and hide them somewhere in a dark spot in the church so they're not found out by other people. Okay, because pragmatism would tell us, well, you need to entice people and get them 
to come in and make the gospel as palatable as possible. Get them in, get them into the front door first and then, then slowly get them warmed up to some of these truths. And let me tell you, that thinking just rips the heart right out of the gospel. So, so you're left without a gospel. Okay? Let me say some words and you tell me if you think this is uh, what churches do or what salesmen do. Okay? Half-truths. Okay? Rewards. Door prizes. First three months free. Incentives. Bonuses. Parties. Free concerts. More food. Okay? be hard-pressed to see, is that what the church does or is that what a salesman does? And we can see many of those terms are just interchangeable. That's what we do to try to lure people in to, into our community, into the message. And then later on, maybe we can talk about some of these more confrontational truths. But is that what we see in Scripture? Is that what we see in the Gospels when Jesus taught? Is that what we see with the apostles? He says, I'm not ashamed of the Gospel. Why is he not ashamed? Why is he not going to revert to these pragmatic and, and seemingly practical methods in order to preach the gospel. He goes, I'm not ashamed because it's the power of God to salvation. I'm not going to neuter the gospel because it is the very power of God to save those who believe. And so I'm going to preach it. I'm going to preach it without ripping the heart out of it. So you will mention that we were created by a holy, powerful, glorious God who is perfect in every way and that we are woefully sinful to the core. That must be understood. That must be articulated as we share the gospel. We must describe God as being so righteous, so pure, that he is like these precious gems that sparkle from no matter what angle you look at. And not only these gems sparkle, but... There's a sweet aroma, a sweet smelling flavor that comes from these gems. That's so wonderful, so beautiful. And this is a picture of the righteousness of God. And you know how the Bible describes our righteousness? A big pile of rotting garbage, dung, manure. Okay, that's the comparison. Here we have God and his righteousness. And here we have a big pile of manure. And Paul doesn't say that's our sinfulness in Philippians 3. He says that big pile of manure, that's your good works. That's your best day, this pile of manure. That's you at your best. Okay? And until we realize that our best is like a pile of manure compared to God's precious, sweet-smelling jewels of righteousness, we're not going to understand the gospel rightly. Because we're going to be hanging on to our best day, our good works, our best efforts. And so we must communicate this as we communicate the gospel. We must be convinced of our need before we see the beauty of the message of the cross because we realize what Jesus Christ has done satisfies that bad news, that our best day is like a pile of manure. That when Jesus came down, he took that rotting garbage upon himself and he dealt with it through his death. And these precious jewels of righteousness, he's given to us as a gift through faith. Wonderful. Wonderful. And it causes us to to flee sin, to run from sin, to repent of our sin and run to Christ in faith and to cling to that righteousness, to cling to Christ and to see our sin as the filth that it is and to wonder at the beauty of Christ, to see it as wisdom and as precious and as God's power. And so we cannot alter the gospel so that's more easily received. If we alter the gospel, then no longer is it the power of God to save. There are many people in this world that believe a gospel 
that is impotent, that has no power to save. They claim to be Christians. They claim to believe the gospel. But what they believe has no power to save them because it's not the true gospel. And so if we alter the gospel, it loses its saving power. And so we preach Christ crucified and all of what that means. Even if people will reject it. Now, you must be, remember, as we go forward and preach the whole gospel, the whole counsel of God, it's going to sound like folly. They're going to call you foolish. They're going to insult you. They're going to slander you. But take comfort. They did it to Jesus. did it to Paul. They did it to Peter. did it to Matthew. And all of these men, Paul and Peter and Matthew and Mark, who wrote these gospels, they all died rather than to alter the gospel. They all spilt their blood without forsaking this message of truth. Matthew was dragged behind horses in Egypt through the streets and then speared. But he would not forsake the truth of the gospel. And now we are going to take out those offensive elements so it's more palatable in our day and age. We're going to rob it of its power. Rob it of its power. And so we preach the whole gospel, even though it will be rejected, but we do not lose heart because we know it will also be received. That's the third point. Okay. So the message of the cross must be proclaimed. The message of the cross will be rejected, but the message of the cross will be received, will be received because look at verse 22 to 23. I'm going to finish with 24 this time. Verse 22, for Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. People will be saved as the gospel is preached. People will be saved. Both Jews and Greeks are going to be saved. Now it says here, to those who are called. Now, who are those who are called? Who are those who are called? Well, look at verse 18. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. So it's the power of God to those who are called in verse 24. It is the power of God to those who are being saved in verse 18. Okay, and look at verse 21. For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. And so the gospel is the power of God to those who believe, to those who are called, to those who are being saved. These are different terms that describe one and the same. Through the message of the cross, it is received, it is believed, and it is saving. And those who believe and those who are saved are those also who are called. These are all descriptions of people who are being rescued from sin through the message of Christ's work on the cross. Okay? Now, why do some people see the gospel as foolish and a stumbling block and others do not? Okay? Jews see the preaching of the cross as a stumbling block. It's foolishness to Gentiles. Why then do some believe? Why is it rejected by some and received by others? Now, what this text is going to tell us is, is why not it's received by some and received by others. And then it's going to tell us why it is. Okay? First off, it's not received by some 
and and rejected by others because of intelligence. You know, because I'm a smart person and I can put two and two together. And so I figured it out. Got it. I'm going to believe. Okay. It's not that. And it's also not lack of intelligence. It's not, I'm a pretty gullible person. I'm pretty prone to believe conspiracy theories. I'm not. But if I was, yeah, good. Okay. No, it's not intelligence, either lots of it or lack of it. That would determine whether someone would believe or reject. Okay. It's not that. It's not your power. It's not, I'm a really important person. And so because I'm an important person, I see the wisdom of the gospel. And so I'm going to believe it's not power or lack of power. It's not the amount of money you have or not amount of money you have. It's not your heredity. It's not who your parents are. It's not your, your nationality, not the church you went to. Okay. It's none of these things. Anything we can point to in ourselves as the reason for why we would receive it and why another person would reject it is completely excluded. Okay? Anything that we can point to in ourselves that said, this is the reason why I, got, I figured it out, I believed, is excluded. Okay? Let me show you this. I'm going to read from verse 26 through 29. Okay? Again, the question, why do some reject and others believe? Because we know it will be rejected. We know it will be received. So what's the difference? Verse 26. Consider your calling. Okay, look at your own experience, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Okay, it wasn't your wisdom. Not many were powerful. It wasn't your power. Not many, many were of noble birth. It wasn't your heredity. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Anything that you can point to within yourself to say, this is why I have believed. Excluded. Excluded. No human boasting. God has chosen to save in a certain way so that human boasting would be excluded, not just minimized, not just tempered, but excluded. No room for any kind of human boasting, any kind of human effort to contribute to salvation. Anything within us that we can point to and say, this is why I'm a Christian. In fact, in this passage, God's calling is equated to God's choosing. He says, consider your calling, brothers, in verse 26. And then three times in this passage, he says, God chose what is foolish. God chose what is weak. In verse 28, God chose what is low. And in fact, in verse 30, he says it so clearly. Why then do some believe? He says in verse 30, and because of him, you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Okay, literally verse 30 says, and from him, you are in Christ Jesus. Because of the work of God, you have been placed into Christ. Now, sometimes the Bible talks about us being put into Christ. And sometimes it says Christ in you. And in Romans 8, those terms are, are used interchangeably. 
Okay? They're both talking about the same reality. Our union with Christ, where our life and our destiny becomes one with Christ and His future. Okay? We are in Christ. We're in His body. And Christ also is in us, mediated through the Holy Spirit in our lives, indwelling. And so when we look at this, from Him you are in Christ, you can all say from Him, Christ is in you. Okay? So in this verse, it's just telling that it is because of God that you are in Christ. God has put you in Christ. Now, this is another way of describing what we've been talking about last few weeks about the new birth. Okay, to be in Christ or to have Christ in you is to be born again, is to be made a new creature. It describes here the new birth. And how is this new birth described? Okay. It says, because of him, you are in Christ Jesus. Now, what's the result? What's the result of God's working? It says, who became to us? Okay, that is, Christ became to us because of God's work, wisdom from God, righteousness, and sanctification and redemption. The preaching of the cross is foolishness to every single person. Every single person. But Christ becomes to us. God's wisdom, his righteousness, his sanctification, his redemption. Suddenly that we see the beauty of the gospel. We see the necessity to come to Christ. We see that in him is wisdom. In him is that righteousness that I need, that I desperately have none of. In him is that sanctification, that growth and holiness that I desire and want. In him is that redemption, that forgiveness of sins, that reconciliation with God. And so I cling to Christ. And so why do I believe? Why do I see Christ as God's wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption? It's because of him that you do that. It's not because of anything in you. It's because of him. And how does that happen? It happens through the preaching of the gospel and through its reception. So we must preach. We must preach. Because that's how people will see the wisdom and the beauty of our Lord Jesus Christ and come to him. Okay? It's not a matter of, of knowing the things that God knows. Okay? Um, Spurgeon said, if there was a way I could lift up someone's shirt tails and on a sign in the back, determine whether he was elect or not well then i could just preach to those who are elect but you don't we don't know what god knows we don't know god's choice we don't know god's sovereign working in this world and so we preach the gospel we preach it with power and with confidence and we can say all of us who have embraced christ as god's wisdom embraced him as our righteousness embraced him as our sanctification and redemption all of us are going to say 100 percent guaranteed it was because of the work of god in my life not one of us take the credit for it. Even though it happened through the instrumentality of the preached word. I can't take credit for it as a preacher and say, yeah, did a good job. No. It is from him. No human boasting. It all happens through the instrument of the preached word. Now, this is an important, raises an important question. Okay. Before we go into our fourth point, I want to ask this question. How do we know then that we are in Christ? It says, because of him, you are in Christ. Well, how do I know that's happened to me? How do I know that God has, has done that work in me? Okay, how do, I, how do I know that I'm in Christ? I want you to ask yourself, who is Christ to me? Who's Christ to me? 
Just think about that for a moment. Who is Jesus Christ to me, to you? Is he some lofty idea, nebulous concept out there? You know, he's, he's, he's a friend. And if I, if I need some help, I know he's going to be there. If I, if I know that life is going to be difficult and I, I'm going to have a rough patch, I know I, know I can count on him to, to lead me through. He's, he's in my pocket if I need him. Is that your conception of Jesus? This kind of fuzzy concept that is there to help you in your distress, in your times of trouble. Okay, that, that's a very common perception of who Jesus and who God is in our society today. He provides me a sense of purpose. He provides me a sense of morality. He provides me a sense of comfort and of therapy when things are difficult. He enables me to, to live my life to the full. He helps me in my purpose in career, in my purpose in family life, in my purpose in, in, in my dreams, in my goals. And Jesus is there to help me do that. If that's who Jesus is to you, that's not the Jesus of the Bible. It's not the Jesus of the Bible. Okay? There, there's certainly some similarities, but it's a warped image of who Jesus is. This text tells us who Jesus is to those who are saved. He's God's wisdom. He's God's wisdom. That is, we see in face of Lord Jesus Christ, we see in what he has done, that perfect work of redemption that is necessary so that we can have fellowship and communion with God. That, that through Christ and through his coming and through his suffering and death, that my sin needed to be paid for on that cross in order for me to be reconciled to God whose law I have transgressed, whose face I have spit upon. I'm like a sheep who wandered away from him and I deserve wrath and punishment. And yet I see the wisdom of Christ and I cling to that cross because it's so very necessary to me. I see that my own efforts are foolishness. I see that my own righteousness is worthless. And so Christ to me is so dear and precious and I will not let go because he's God's wisdom to redeem me. So is that Christ to you? Is Christ to you your righteousness in the same vein? That I have nothing apart from Christ. That, that my righteousness is like filthy rags. It's like a pile of manure. And that I, I need Christ. I need him to sustain me. I need his righteousness in my life or I'm nothing. I'll be destroyed by God if I do not have Christ's righteousness. Do you also see Christ as your sanctification? Do you long for him to make you holy? Do you have desires for holiness? Is that even a concern? If you know the Christ of scripture and if you are in him and he is in you, then you will long to be like him. You will read about the things that he does and he says, and you're like, wow. I wish I could be like that. I wish I could have that kind of wisdom. I wish I could have that kind of righteousness. I wish I could control myself. I wish I could be that loving and that, that self-sacrificial. Oh God, help me as a sinner to be more like you. Is that your desire? Christ becomes to us our sanctification. And he becomes to us our redemption. Our freedom from the bondage of sin. We cling to him because he is our life. He is our greatest treasure, our greatest joy. Could you honestly look at your life, look at the last month and look back and say, Christ has been my greatest treasure. 
I've treasured Christ in this past month. I trust that that both convicts us and encourages us to persevere in our trust of the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So this message of the cross is the very thing God uses to put Christ in us and to put us into Christ. And so we must preach. Some will reject. Others will receive by the grace of God. And so the message of the cross compels us, even commands us to repent and believe. Okay, the message of the cross is not a take it or leave it message. Okay, we don't say Jesus has died and risen again and take it if you like, or if it's not for you, that's okay. No, inherent in the preaching of the gospel is the command to repent and believe. In fact, in Acts 17, it says that Jesus Christ has been risen on high and he now commands all men everywhere, in case you didn't get all that, it's all men everywhere to repent and to believe the gospel. It's a command. And so when we preach the gospel, we're telling people the good news and they must repent and believe. Okay? And... When we repent and believe, we'll all say it was all the work of God. God opened up his word to me and I saw Christ. That's going to be the testimony of a believer. The fourth implication from this text. Okay. The message of the cross must be proclaimed. It will be rejected. It will graciously be received because it is God's power. And fourthly, the message of the cross brings glory to God. And this is really the, the great focus of these messages. It's all for the glory of God and the message of the cross. God has done it this way to bring glory to himself. Okay, look at verse 31. Verse 31. It says, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. If you have the authorized version, let the one who glorious Glory in the Lord. Okay? I like that. Both King James and New King James use that word glory to translate this word boast. Okay? Let the one who glories, glory in the Lord. May your boast be in him. And notice how this verse starts with a a so that. Okay? So that. A a therefore. So everything that's been said so far from verse 18 all the way down through verse 30 is a so that. God has done it this way. He was pleased to save people through the folly of what we preach, the message of the cross, Christ crucified, so that the one who would boast would boast in the Lord, so we would glorify him. That's the reason why he's done it. Okay, and so we have to ask, why is verse 31 as so that? How are we going to boast in the Lord? Well, two reasons. First of all, we recognize that God has accomplished the work of salvation. It's because of him. It's from him that you are in Christ who became to us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Okay, it's God's doing. We look back at we were stuck dead in our trespasses and sins. But God being rich in mercy with the love that he has loved us made us alive together with Christ. It says in Ephesians 2. And so we glory in what God has done. We see the powerful work of Christ, how he secured the redemption of his people. He inaugurated the new covenant with his blood. And so we glory God in what he has done, in the Father's plan, in the Son's working, in the Spirit's application of it through the new birth. All these things cause us to glorify God, to boast in him. We recognize salvation is 
of the Lord. Now, there's another thing that we must consider. Okay, so we glory in God because he has accomplished the work of salvation himself. We also glory in God because he uses the message of the gospel to accomplish salvation. Now, why does that bring glory to God? Why doesn't God just zap people to save them? You know, why doesn't God just, you know, in, in a, someone's just sitting there one day, they're maybe riding the bus and all of a sudden, zap, they're a Christian. Oh, man, I saved them. Why doesn't God do that? He's sovereign, right? He can do that. Um, why does God use the preaching of the gospel to save? How is that going to increase his glory? There's some people that in the past who said, well, God is going to save who he's going to save. And so sit down, young man. That was famously said to William Carey uh, before the modern mission movement took flight. Okay. As in God has the power to save, he's going to save you. You don't have to be that zealous in proclaiming the gospel. Okay. God's sovereign. So why is God glorified through the preaching of his word? We see that it's necessary here, but why does that cause God to be glorified? Well, God is pleased to use the preaching of the cross to save those who believe. That is, God is pleased to use us as his ambassadors, as his instruments, as his mouthpiece in proclaiming the gospel such that our joy would be increased by seeing the gospel go forth in power. And as our joy increases by by taking part in proclaiming the gospel and seeing God use that to convert and to convict and to save and to redeem, to change people. Our joy increases, and as our joy increases, God is in turn glorified. The more we are satisfied in God, the more God is glorified in us. And so the more joy we have by taking part in the work of God, by proclaiming the gospel, the more glory God receives. Not just from those who have received it. They're going to give glory to God because they've received the salvation that was accomplished by Christ and Christ alone. And it's been received through faith alone. They're going to glorify God. And the ones who are proclaiming that message are going to glorify God because they're going to be seeing God at work and rejoice that they were able to have a part in that. So they, in turn, glorify God. As we see all of this, resounds to the glory of God, both in the reception and in the proclamation. Because the sovereign power in a God who saves serves his glory, it gives us actually great joy and great confidence and causes us in turn to glorify him. And so the question I want us to ask as we consider this sermon series is, do you desire to bring glory to God? Do you desire to bring glory to God? If you do, and I hope that you do, honestly desire to bring glory to God, then you will rejoice in your salvation and you will acknowledge and embrace and love that it was accomplished by God and God alone. Because you want to glorify God. The second thing you're going to do if you want to glorify God is you're going to make the gospel known. You're going to preach it. You're going to write it. You're going to give it. You're going to share it. You're going to teach it to your children. Because you want to see God glorified and you believe this text. That he's glorified through the preaching of his word and through its reception of faith. Let's pray.